Hello, and welcome to episode 167 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfor-Stewart. A warm welcome to Emily J., Jasmine O., Heather J., and Heike S. to The Modern Manager. If you love the show, please consider becoming a member and showing your support. Memberships start at just $5 per month, and you can learn more at themodernmanager.com slash join. Now, today's guests are Mohammed Anwar and Frank Dana. Mohammed and Frank are co-authors of the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Love as a Business Strategy. Mohammed is the CEO of Softway, and in his spare time, he enjoys fitness, watching college sports, and butchering American idioms. Frank is the director of culture at Softway, and in his spare time, he writes children's books, makes silly videos, and also enjoys fitness. Frank, Mohammed, and I talk about the idea of love in business, what love is all about, why it matters, what they learned in their journey of applying love as a business strategy in their own work, and how you can adopt a similar approach. Now here's the conversation. You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now here's your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. Mohammed and Frank, thank you so much for joining me today on The Modern Manager. I have just powered through your book and I have loved it so much. I'm so excited for my listeners to hear this conversation today because I think it is going to be not only a really insightful one, but also a really fun one. Yeah, we're very excited. Thank you, Mamie. Glad to be here. All right. We are going to jump right in because this topic of love, I have to admit, when I first saw love as a business strategy, I was like, really? Is this going to be one of those like mushy, gushy, like, oh, if we can just all get along? But that's not what you're talking about at all. So why don't you give me, (laughs) yeah, why don't you give us an overview of like, what is love in the workplace all about? Yeah, I can, I can jump in. You know, when, when we talk about love, we're not writing about romance. So all of the HR folks can breathe a sigh of relief because we're not, we're not talking about inner office relationships, but we are talking about an, an action, a framework that aims to prioritize people to maximize profits. And it is a, a framework that we, we believe in and it is a set of different things and behaviors that we can do together to create an environment of inclusion, of care, of resilience, belonging, and success. So that's really, when we talk about love, it has little to do with the mushy gushy stuff and more to do with the way in which we treat each other and how we approach connecting people to profit. That makes a whole lot more sense from a business perspective. And I know that it's not just love as a business strategy, but it's actually like love as a culture. It's not just how you run your business, but it's about like the experience and the ethos that exists within the company, right? Am I getting that right? Yes. Uh, I would say that a big part of love as a business strategy is ensuring that you are instituting a culture of love within your organization. Because we believe, as Peter Drucker rightfully said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So if we're looking to have love as a business strategy, then the underpinning culture needs to also be that of culture of love. That's, that's kind of the foundations. So maybe you can see more about how you define culture, because I've had a lot of people come on the show and talk about culture, and everybody defines it a little bit differently. So what to you makes up culture? Frank, I'll let you go at it. I love this question because you know where I'm going to go, Mohammed. You're, I know you know. 
Yes. <laughs> I want to talk about Star Wars. So to, to us, culture is like the force in Star Wars. It is all around us. It can be felt, but it's hard to tangibly describe. But the way we define culture is the, the culmination of behavior. So how we behave with each other creates an environment that can allow people to bring their full selves to work, or it can create an environment of fear where people are unwilling to bring their full selves to work because they feel like they're going to be hurt or attacked or belittled. And simply put, a culture is how we behave with each other. And as we begin to behave in certain ways, that creates a type of culture. And you can even inherit a legacy of misbehaving culture. If you join an organization and the first thing you hear is, hey, the sales team and the IT team, they do not see eye to eye. So we're going to make sure that, you know, we don't talk to that group because they're not part of the group that you need to connect with. And then you start seeing the way people are behaving and engaging with each other is adding to a culture. So in our opinion, you know, a culture is not the perks or the benefits or the pay package. It's not a ping pong table. It's not uh, guacamole Fridays because those are just added elements of working in an organization. A culture is truly how we behave with each other and how we treat each other. I love your analogy to the force. And it and it makes so much sense because we talk about culture as being something that can be like felt but not seen and that it's made up of all of these kind of ephemeral things that exist. So it just is a really nice analogy. So let's talk about the six pillars. And I want to learn a little bit more about how you connect those six pillars to creating that culture, creating that experience or that feeling for employees. So however you want to break it down into those different topics, I'll, I'll let you two navigate that fun part. Yeah. Mohammed, do you want to, do you want to kind of walk through the framework? Yeah, I'll go ahead and take a jab at it. So essentially, Essentially, we believe that there are six pillars to that of a culture of love or any good culture that you're striving to build inside of your organization. And these six pillars consist of number one, inclusion is the first pillar. And by inclusion, we mean making sure everyone has a seat and a voice at the table, but we're not referring to just the visible differences when it comes to different elements of diversity. We're not just talking about gender or ethnicity or race, but we're talking about also the invisible aspects of diversity, which could be how I value time versus how Frank values time or Frank's educational background versus my educational background and a variety of different elements of diversity and how we need to create an environment where everyone is included, no matter which element of diversity is brought to the table. And then the second pillar is empathy being able to practice empathy towards not just the ones you relate with, but with everyone from all facets of diversity and being able to empathize and putting yourselves in the shoes of others who may not think like you, who may not behave like you, who may not look like you or act like you. And we can't hide behind the excuse that uh, empathy is a trait because it isn't, it is a skill and it can be practiced and improved and garnered. So that's the second pillar. And the third pillar is vulnerability. And by vulnerability, we're not talking about sharing your deepest, darkest secrets. It's as simple as being able to take ownership and apologize, saying, you know what? I messed up. That's on me. But yet it is the hardest thing for leaders or individuals to admit to. 
And so when you are able to be vulnerable in the simplest way, but yet the most difficult thing for people to do, then you're able to trust people also from that lens and trust them more. So when you have the right amount of vulnerability, then you can trust people truly in a full capacity and not just from a predictive way. And what do I mean by that? A lot of times people will say, yes, I have trust between each other or between my coworkers and my teammates. But behind the scenes, that trust is only to a predictive layer, meaning I can trust someone only for these things because I trust Frank to write copy for me because I know he's done it before and that's what he's good at. So I trust him, but I only trust him for those things that he has visibly proven in the past versus trusting Frank to go write code on a piece of software. I would not trust him to that extent because I haven't seen him do it before. But is Frank capable of doing it? Perhaps, but I would still not trust him because I have not seen him do it. And that's where vulnerability Mm -hmm. trust steps in and you're able to trust someone, their intent unconditionally, and you will give trust Frank. If Frank comes and says, you know what, Mo, I can program. Give me a chance to program our code. And I'd be like, you know what? I've never seen you code, but you know what? I'm going to trust you anyways. Go for it. That's the level of trust that we must try to bring about in, in the culture we're striving for. And then the fifth pillar is empowerment. This is when you are able to empower people truly, not disguise your delegation you know, abilities as being empowerment, but truly empowering people to own the destiny of that uh, project or task or you know, things that you may have assigned them to own. And you do it in a way that you set them up for success, give them everything they need to ensure that they are successful with this uh, task or project even if they have never done it before. And when you're able to trust them from a place of vulnerability and empower them, that's when people can bring the, what we call the power of empowerment. When they are going to take on this task or project, not from a place of fear because my boss assigned it to me, but because my boss trusted me with doing something that he's never seen me do. And at that point in time, that employee or team member is going to do anything and everything in their power to make sure that they do not disappoint the very person who trusted them. And that's the empowerment pillar. And then the last pillar is forgiveness. We are all human. We hurt each other intentionally or unintentionally. And sometimes we may not even know that we've hurt someone. And when that happens, we start holding on to unforgiveness if we cannot come to reconciliation or resolve that hurt. And that leads us to misbehave and treat each other in ways we don't want to or need to, but we justify those behaviors because we believe that we've been wronged and that it's okay to treat or mistreat each other as a result of that unforgiveness. So we have to find ways of creating environments at the corporate workplace where we can talk about forgiveness, where we can recognize that we may hold on to unforgiveness towards each other. Because if we don't, that's what leads to toxic workplace environments, a lot of politics, a lot of silos, retaliation, 
and all of the things that are represented by a toxic workplace can stem from unforgiveness. And this is something that is barely or rarely talked about in a corporate workplace environment. So collectively, the six pillars of inclusion, empathy, vulnerability, trust, empowerment, and forgiveness is what defines a culture of love when it's properly instituted and uh, people are held accountable to operate with those pillars. See, this is this is why I think your book is so brilliant and your your analysis of the work that you did internally at Softway was so brilliant because those six pillars are just amazing. So first is I just want to like give appreciation for how how amazing those particular six are and how powerful they are together. And I feel like we could spend the entire episode talking about any single one of them. But I want people to read the book so they can they can hear and get kind of all of the depth of all of that. But so I want to just instead narrow in on a couple of things that really resonated with me when I was reading through. And one of those was about this trust. And you already kind of talked about the two different forms of trust. So I'm not going to repeat that. The other was the role of reflection and introspection. And that for managers who are saying, okay, I want to I want to build this kind of culture. Like this all sounds great, whether or not I use the term love in my particular setting or not, all of those pillars are things I want. And there was a line somewhere in the book that said something like, if the only thing you do next is like be better at introspection, that will be a win. So can you maybe talk about the difference between reflection and introspection and why is that so important for managers to start practicing? Sure. So let's start with the difference and then I can tie it back to why it's important for managers. So first thing is reflection is something that's commonly practiced in the workplace. It's as simple as, you know, you walk into a meeting where you have to present something and after the meeting, you reflect on how that presentation went. And you can talk about what you could have done better or how you could have presented differently to achieve, you know, better goals or better outcomes. So that's reflection. That's very surface level. And introspection is taking it a level deeper and looking inward and asking yourselves the question after that same meeting and presentation, questions such as, why was I nervous going into that presentation? Or why did I get upset when Frank asked me that question in the middle of the presentation? And it's more of those why questions and around your behaviors and your mindsets in the moment. That is an example of what introspection is versus reflection. And in our workplaces, we spend too much time reflecting and there is a place and need for reflection because there are a lot of things we can improve on the what and how we approach stuff, but there's far little time spent by managers on the introspective aspect of understanding why they behave the way in those different scenarios. And unless you can take a moment and look inward and try to understand yourself and answer the why questions as to why you acted the way you did, why you behaved the way you did, you cannot unlock self-awareness. And today, the managers are plagued with, unfortunately, due to our corporate systems and environments, to behave a certain way because we were raised in those environments. And too many times that clouds their ability to have 
self-awareness. And we act and behave a certain way because that's how we were treated. And that's how my leaders are successful. And that's what it takes for me to be successful. So it must be the right way to behave. We get conditioned in our corporate environments to behave and act a certain way. And as we climb the ladders of success in our leadership journey, we tend to forget the feelings and the, uh, the way we felt when we were still you know, not in those positions of power. But when we reach those positions of power, we lack self-awareness of how we come across, how we may be treating people. In fact, it's very polarized opposites. Leaders and managers might think that they're being experienced in a very good way versus the reality of how other people are experiencing is far distant from what the manager thinks they're being experienced as. And that gap is lack of self-awareness. And so if you want to reduce that gap of how you think you're being experienced by others versus how others are truly experiencing you, introspection is key to reduce that self-awareness gap. And uh, that's a very critical and foundational practice to allow leaders to make a difference in the workplace of how they treat others and how they can institute the right culture. So introspection is like a foundational aspect and a prerequisite. Without it, you can't even begin to transform. I mean, I that is just so well said, and I 100% agree. And you can see how right if we think we're behaving one way and we're coming across differently, we that like and we're not aware like then we don't know that there's a problem. And as you said, like we're at a moment in time where we should be questioning why are we acting the way we act in many ways on many fronts. I mean, culture is changing here in the United States, it's changing across the world in terms of what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, the ways that things are supposed to be done, who gets to set those norms. So if we can't ask ourselves to question our own behavior, our own ways of working, our own ways of thinking, then like we can't just expect other people to, to bring it to our attention all the time. So I, I love this idea of creating a practice of asking yourself, why am I feeling this way? Why am I acting this way? What is driving me? What is sparking me? What is you know making me nervous? Whatever it is. And integrating that into kind of your regular reflection, your regular way of being as a manager. And like, I want to build on this and say, okay, so, well, first, maybe one or both of you could share a story of when that practice of introspection was really powerful for you and how it changed or impacted your own experience as a manager or, and, or with your team. Yeah. I, it's, it's kind of nonlinear. Cause I mean, Mohammed, you have, you have lots of these stories, but I think for me, it was about two years into our transformation as an organization and really Muhammad's journey into, you know, what we call servant leadership, reliable leadership, and kind of, and transforming himself to be a better, a better boss, a better person, a better manager for our organization. And he had already done an incredible amount of thing, of work for our company to, to really start to prove out this, this idea of a culture of love. We were flying on the way to Prague and Muhammad and I had this this very long conversation, and you know I will never forget it because he he literally looked at me and said, Frank, I I think that it's time for you to 
start being a servant leader, to step into this role as well. I see the opportunity that you have, and I know that it's something that you can do. And for me, I had to introspect and think for myself, wow, I'm actually not actively cultivating or practicing the culture of love. I'm enjoying the perks of my CEO and my mentor showcasing this type of leadership to others. I'm enjoying the culture that's been created, but I'm not stepping into that place myself. And if I'm being honest, I didn't really feel like I needed to, like I was what you'd consider to be a manager in the team at that time. And I thought, Hey, Muhammad's doing such a good job. But the reality was he wasn't in the rooms I was in. He wasn't in the teams that I was working in and his legacy of leadership began and ended with him. And to me in that moment of introspection, that was unacceptable. I wasn't aware that my behaviors also had an impact in creating a culture. And so, you know, on that plane ride, he reminded me that this type of leadership isn't about monetary sacrifices. It's about giving up comfort to serve your team. And it's serving each other in little ways. And I realized in that moment that there was so much more that I could do. And I didn't necessarily feel guilt or condemnation, but there was an opportunity to improve. And it's, I think that that layer of introspection that I went a bit deeper into was saying, what now, how can I move forward in this space? And so I basically gave myself permission because he'd already given me and everyone permission to act in this way. And that completely transformed my approach to how I lead and really emphasized the need to do for others. So when we landed in India, I did my very best to serve the needs of our team as often as I could. I go get donuts. I go buy people coffee, walk across the street and buy like a dozen individual different types of orders of coffee, not to be seen, not to build an ego, but to feel what it was like to truly care for my colleagues. And I, I saw the world with fresh eyes after that moment. And it was as a result of both feedback that I had received from Muhammad and my own self-awareness that had come to fruition in that moment. And I recognized an opportunity to change. And that really had a huge impact on me from an introspection perspective. That's a great story and a, and a wonderful way to show that, one, we all are important pieces of the culture, right? It's, it's on all of us to create the culture, not just the manager or not just the senior leaders. And that when we are not afraid to be introspective, then we, we actually can step up in new ways. And I know for myself, there are definitely times where I, like my husband pointed something out to me a couple of weeks ago and he was like, you know, you really got angry when this person brought this topic up. And I was like, oh my gosh, I really did get angry. And that just awareness, as you're all saying, is so powerful in making us realize the things that we value and the things that are that are important to others. So just more more introspection uh, is always a good always a good thing. <laughs> yeah. And you know, just to, to kind of connect to that point, what you're talking about is not just a work thing. It is a thing. Like you just mentioned an example of your husband sharing that feedback with you, right? And introspection is a powerful tool because it it enhances our ability to see others, right? It enhances our, our ability to understand maybe I'm holding on to some unforgiveness that I need to actually deal with. And as a manager, you may be reacting to someone and going, okay, now why did I react to that person and not that other person over there? What, what is it about what they said? Or maybe it's 
what they've done previously. Okay. Am I harboring unforgiveness towards this birth? Right. Being able to walk through that journey, it clears the air and it creates an opportunity to build more trust, to build more empathy, to build more inclusion. All of those pillars that we talk about are unlocked through introspection and through action. And that's really, you know, what love is. So I want to touch on another element that's a little more in the weeds again, which is this idea of the empathetic leader. And I mean, empathy is one of the pillars, but there was an example that you gave in the book talking about a sympathetic leader. And I can't remember what the other terms were, but you kind of expanded upon this idea. And that I think is really helpful. And I will say for myself, because some of the the ways that we show up even if, even if we're trying to be servant leaders, sometimes aren't as helpful as we think they might be. So can you maybe just expand on that topic a bit? Yes. So an apathetic manager has disregard for the person and only cares about business outcomes. A sympathetic manager cares only about the person, but has no you know, uh, interest to help with the business outcomes. And then the empathetic leader is able to consider the person and tie it back to business outcomes. So an empathetic leader is not just going to be sympathetic, but they're going to be truly empathetic and work with them to solve and achieve the business outcomes as well. And this happens in our day-to-day life, especially the pandemic environment, the remote environment. Many of us are going through many different crises, issues, parent caregiver responsibilities, or you know, internet issues, all kinds of problems, right? That could be impeding our ability to do work or going through a lot of emotional stress. An apathetic manager won't even care for it and be like, just get me my work done. A sympathetic manager will be like, you know what? I'm so sorry. Don't worry about it. You, you, you just go take care of you. Uh, I'll take care of the work for you. And then begrudgingly go do the work because they're not able to get beyond the sympathy. They feel so sorry that they end up taking the work for themselves or they give it to someone else who's already overburdened. And then an empathetic leader is like, I see your situation. Let me try to tell you what uh, I can do to help you with your situation. If your kids, you need to take them and pick them, drop off. Maybe I can move the meeting. Maybe I can uh, work with you at 9 p.m. tonight. Would that help you with your kids so you can put them to bed and then we talk about the work? So an empathetic leader tries to find ways of making it work for the person and the business. And so that's kind of the difference in the business context of things. And we face this every day. And a lot of times people mistake sympathy for empathy and they feel like oh, if I'm being empathetic, I should let them off the hook and take it on my own. Maybe in some instances that is needed, but from a work context, that's actually hurtful to others and maybe even to yourself because you will end up holding on to it. So getting to a place of empathetic leadership where you're going to be able to consider the person and the business outcomes is the place that I think all managers should strive for. So to wrap us up on this topic, is there one thing that people can do, either a question they can ask themselves or an action that they can take that can help them lead as an empathetic leader instead of as a sympathetic manager or, or worse, an apathetic manager? I'd say that recognize the difference 
and you know it's it's a fine line but if you're if you're seeing yourself you know considering too much of the person situation but aren't able to achieve the business outcomes then maybe you're going on the sympathy side and if you're able to strike the balance between how to truly empathize by taking into consideration the situation that the person is in but also making sure it's still going to achieve our business outcomes that's the fine balance to find so being able to understand the difference first is the first step actionable step and the second step is how do you then find a balance and involve the person show empathy get the other you know your employee or your team member involved in the solutioning of this and say i understand you're in this predicament tell me how can i help you what do you think we can do give them some options let them give ideas and then try to get to achieving the business outcome while also taking into consideration the situation of the employee so get them involved in the solutioning of it and then they'll feel supported and you won't hold on to resentment or somebody else won't have to end up doing that work and and then they hold on to resentment saying i don't understand why my manager keeps giving me extra work because somebody else had an issue and you're avoiding all of those scenarios so that's what i would say first step recognize the different second step is get the party involved in helping find the solution together with you i'd add to that kind of just the, the last piece would be applying the platinum rule to it and you know the golden rule is to treat others as you would want to be treated yourself and that sounds really good on paper and all of us learned that oh you know like practice the golden rule but the platinum rule is treat others the way they want to be treated which means that we have to have a better understanding of who they are of what makes them tick of their their particular set of needs so you know one set of the, what muhammad mentioned is what you can do and really what we need to then start working towards is understanding the individual and making sure that whatever situation we're able to work on together is hearing them out from that perspective of what they would like to have done unto them instead of the golden rule of hey i think that's this is what this person needs instead of asking what they need or creating a safe space and environment to have a discussion about solving the problem together I love these suggestions and I'm so sad we have to end our conversation. We're already, we've just been talking for too long because the show's only supposed to be 30 minutes, but this is so good. So, all right, we have to wrap up. Um, because the show is called The Modern Manager, can you quickly, quickly tell us about an amazing manager that you worked for and what made this person so fantastic as a boss? So when I think about a, a manager who has inspired me and motivated me and driven me, it is Muhammad. And I've known Muhammad for a very, very long time, longer than I'd care to say. And I'm just kidding. I've known him since I was 18 and I'm no longer 18 years old, by the way. And over, you know, over a decade and nearly a decade and a half of time around Muhammad. First, I wasn't necessarily working under him, but now for a bulk of my, of my career working under and alongside of him, he has been someone who has consistently seen something in me that other people would either disregard or consider or, or not even consider at all. And he has fought for me to have a voice and a seat at the table. And in those moments where no one else believed in me, he believed in me and gave me a shot. 
And I'm someone who struggles with imposter syndrome. So anyone who backs you up and says, no, this person can do what he says he can do. That is an unbelievable manager. And so Muhammad has actually consistently been the person to, to push me, to motivate me and, you know, to be someone who can give me harsh and critical feedback, but something that I actively seek from him. And, and I think that's made a huge, huge impact in who I am as a person and who I am as a colleague for others at Softway. I feel so lucky to like hear you say that. And now I get to hear what Mohammed says in response, because that's just, that's awesome. I've never had someone name their colleague who's on the podcast with me as their rock star manager. Awesome. So I, obviously, as you know, um, I'm, I'm the CEO of our company. So I have the benefit of not having managers above me uh, in a traditional sense. So to be honest, I'm going to go right back oh, at no. Frank and the rest of our team. I think for, you know, for the longest time, I have felt that I was lonely at the top, that the CEO is at the highest position and it gets, there's a saying that it gets lonely in the top. And I did feel that way for the longest time. I didn't feel like there was there were people who could coach me, mentor me, give me feedback, give me guidance. And to be honest, I feel blessed that the rest of my team at Softway, including Frank, were a big part of molding who I am today. And they managed me and they managed my misbehaviors and all of the moments that I've had uh, where I was not very pleasant. And I think if anything, they played the role of a mentor and manager to me, where they gave me feedback, they gave me guidance, they let me hear what I needed to hear, which nobody else was there to tell me because I don't have a boss or someone who can give me feedback. And I think the rest of my team, especially Frank, played a big role in managing their CEO by giving the feedback and the mentorship that I needed and the awareness that I needed. So I'm very grateful um, for all of the people of Softway for having the courage and uh, to speak the truth to me and uh, have faith in me, have grace with me, have forgiveness for me and be there to support me to where today I do not for even a moment feel lonely at the top. I feel very well supported. And I quite honestly tell other leaders now that that's a myth. If you really have the right culture, then everyone around you, everyone that works with you are here to be your support system. You're not alone. So with that, I give, I, I, I say all of my team members are like my managers. They do manage me quite a bit. Wow. It's clear there's so much love between you that the culture of love is, is alive and flourishing. Thank you. <laughs> All right. And finally, where can people get your copy of your book, learn more about you and keep up with your work? Yeah. So our book is called Love as a Business Strategy. It is available everywhere books are sold online. Amazon is probably the best place to get it, but you can pick it up at Barnes and Noble, at um, Apple Books and, you know, hardback, paperback and the digital formats as well. And, you know, our company is called Softway. And we are a technology company that helps transform company cultures. You can learn more about us and the work we do at softway.com. And then lastly, we also have a podcast 
uh, the, of the same name, Love as a Business Strategy. So if you're interested in diving into some of the topics and continuing to explore the ways in which love plays a role in a variety of different business settings and contexts, including healthcare and other places that you may not necessarily think love would be at the center of work, we'd love for you to listen to our podcast, Love's a Business Strategy as well. And can you just give a shout out to your leadership program in case people are interested in getting more hands-on involvement? Sure. I'll take a job at that. So we host um, a leadership experience called Seneca Leaders, which are guided virtual or in-person leadership experiences where we take leaders through a journey of introspection designed to build self-awareness around their behaviors. And the difference is in the way we approach our Seneca, uh, it's called the Seneca leaders and the way we approach our leadership experience, which is different from a, a traditional leadership training that you may have heard of is the fact that we are practitioners and not academics. And we teach from our own lived experiences, leader to leader not from case studies or hypothetical examples. We guide our leaders to a realization of how their behaviors impact others and business outcomes. And we do that by building an empathic connection with the audiences through dynamic and powerful storytelling. And by showcasing our own mistakes and failures, we give permission to our attendees to let their guards down and see themselves through the stories that we share. And we're not afraid to cover topics most corporate environments shy away from, like mis subjects like misbehavior and unforgiveness. So I invite everyone to experience Seneca leaders to help bring back humanity to the workplace. And that begins with transforming behaviors of our leaders, which is a pathway to high performance, resilience, and feeling of belonging that so many organizations need and desire today. You can learn more information about this Seneca leaders experience on softway.com. Thank you both. So, so, so much for sharing your stories and your experiences and what you have learned through building a culture of love. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's been awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having us on this podcast. Appreciate it very much. Mohammed and Frank are providing five members of The Modern Manager a copy of their book, Love as a Business Strategy. To become a member, go to themodernmanager.com slash join. And if you work for a government or a nonprofit agency, you get 20% off of any membership level. All the links are in the show notes and they can be delivered to your inbox when you subscribe to my newsletter. Find that at themodernmanager.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively build healthy relationships with your colleagues, and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit Meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com. You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rock star boss of a thriving team, I can tell. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and join the mailing list at MamieKS.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes and other special content delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.